From the studios of EWTN, this is Open Line with today's host, Father Brian Mullady. In North America, call toll-free 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985 or send an email to openline at EWTN.com. Well, happy Thursday to each and every one of you, and happy birthday to our Blessed Mother as we celebrate the uh, Feast of the Nativity of our Blessed Mother today. Uh, we hope that you will uh, deepen your relationship with her. She's only going to do one thing, and that is lead you to her son. Uh, so I couldn't advocate that devotion anymore. Father Brian Mullady is in the house. If you'd like to be part of the program today, the number is 833 833- 288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, that number is 1-205-271-2985. And we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1-205-271-2985. And you can always send us an email. That email address is line at EWTN.com. I'm Jack Williams, Michael McCall, producing the program and handling our social media efforts. So if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook Live, you can type a question into the chat window, and it may find its way to us by the end of the program. And uh, Matt Kubensky is screening our phone calls today, as always. Our host is he is every Thursday, Father Brian Mullady. How are you? Just peachy, thank you. You know, I've heard our Blessed Mother described as the quintessential Jewish mother. All she says is, have I got a son for you. (laughs) So, Father, on this uh, blessed uh, feast of the birth of our blessed mother, you being the slave driver that you are, want to talk about the church's teaching on work. Uh, Yeah, because of Labor Day. (laughs) Um, I've talked about this before, but I want to, it's such an important topic, I'd like to re-examine it. Um, you know, the problem of labor, capital, and work is obviously central to the Industrial Revolution, number one. But even more, we're still having the same difficulties today with all the things that are going on in our country and in other countries over the economy. And I think it's important to review the church's teaching on this a bit. First of all, to understand our teaching Many people don't. They they think we're contradictory. Uh, You have to remember that the whole idea of work having a moral dimension and therefore economics comes from the fact that in Genesis, um, Adam is told to subdue and dominate the earth. However, there are three basic levels on which this occurs. The first is you have Adam being told in general to, um, you know, do this. But then this is implemented in the work which is considered moral because it flows from his intellect and will. It's an attempt to uh, spiritually form material goods for the sake of the spiritual people. So in this sense, we're allowed to possess material goods. We have to because we have bodies. So first we have dominion, then we have possession. 
But then the issue of property, which is the issue of the present economy, only comes in for Catholics with the original sin. And the reason is because before the sin, everyone would have given according to their need, as is true in religious communities today. St. Augustine in his rule says that in the those that are influenced by Augustinian, the Augustinian rule, uh, everyone has to be given according to their need in the vow of poverty, but it's better to need little than to have much. However, because of selfishness and egotism, which enters in the original sin because of the loss of grace, we have to guarantee this by the institution of property. However, the universal destination of goods, which everyone's been given according to their need, trumps property in the case of obvious and urgent necessity. So let's say I'm dying of thirst on a desert, and I come in a well, and it says $5 for a drink, and I have no money. It wouldn't be considered theft, contrary to the seventh commandment in Catholicism, for us to take a drink. In fact, the the definition of theft is to take what belongs to another against the reasonable intention of the owner. Well, if the owner wanted me to, you know, um, die of thirst, that wouldn't be a reasonable intention. So in the 19th century, this all came to a, a head in the, the whole problems that occurred because of the development of the factories and the Industrial Revolution. And Leo XIII was the first pope to deal with this business of capital and labor. And he had to confront both Marxism on the one hand, which taught that private property was evil, basically, and the source of all our problems. And on the other hand, with this kind of capitalism that had developed um, in the 19th century, where the law of supply and demand was the only law, and even the salary had to obey that. And so he developed principles to try to guide Catholics in this. In all future discussions, that were based and formed in the encyclical Rerum Novarum, and all the more recent papal encyclicals have all been an anniversaries of Rerum Novarum. And the Church's solution is a middle course between absolute capitalism with property as the only motive and communism. And it's basically on four levels that this occurs. First of all, Pope Leo taught that there is a right to private property against Marxism. It's now part of the natural law because of our egotistical tendencies. But he also pointed out that because property comes after this universal destination of goods, that as all rights, there's a corresponding duty, which is to develop it for the good of human beings, which would be if you provide a good service, which is helpful to people, but primarily, and this is Catholic doctrine um, in its be most beautiful sense, in this question of the wage, the just wage. And for Leo, a just wage included a wage in which a family could survive based on what was, um, you know, paid. Also, he taught that the state could make certain laws about private property against the capitalists of the 19th century, things like, you know, just working day or child labor or something like that. But the, primarily, the, the state didn't have a role to play in 
private um, ownership, except one of supplementary character. Thirdly, he recalled the duties of workers to employees to give a just day's work, but he also demanded of the employers that if they were acting in a Christian manner, they had to pay a just salary for this work. And again, in later encyclicals, this was declared to be a family wage. And fourthly, against class struggle of Marxism, the Pope condemned this as unnatural, but also because labor unions were first beginning to form, reconcile the rights of workers to organize for insurance purposes or to, you know, encourage the employers. But he also felt that, like the craft guilds of the Middle Ages, these unions should not uh, exclude employers, but they should include employers, interestingly enough. And the strike was recognized implicitly as something you could do, but it couldn't be the result of class warfare, in which one class was trying to destroy the other to take over. Instead, if workers struck, it was basically to try to encourage the employers to do what they were supposed to do. In other words, pay a just wage and those kinds of things to help them learn how to be employers. And as a result, you know, all attempts totalitarian-wise to take over property, to charge unjust taxes, to nationalize industries that don't need to be nationalized, to force people on a higher level, are against what's called the principle of subsidiarity, in which the purpose of the higher community, like the state, for example, is not to supplant the lower community, but to get the lower community to do what it should be doing. So the state can't replace business, nationalize things like health care, where there's no private possibilities would be wrong. And also, for example, in education, the parents are the primary educators, not the state. The state plays a supplementary role to the parents, whereas unfortunately in the Western world, off too often today, the state has been looked upon as the primary educator and the parents are supplementary. Now, that can't be the case. So on Labor Day, what we try to do is recall the proper way in which to exercise man's mind over matter in uh, ethical work. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. If you have a question, call 1-833-288-EWTN. That's 1-833-288-3986. Outside North America, call 1-205-271-2985. Or send us an email to openline at EWTN.com. Don't miss the latest political and cultural reporting and analysis on topics of interest to Catholics and people of faith on The World Over with Raymond Arroyo. And you can get news from The World Over in your email box every week. Just sign up by visiting EWTN.com and click on subscribe. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Wide open phone lines and a free phone call for you at 833 288 3986. 
it seems fitting on this uh, birthday of Our Lady for Beth's email to get read first. She says, Is Mary the new tabernacle? Did God take special care in creating and selecting her? All right. Uh, Yes, I think you could describe her as the new tabernacle in which the body of Christ is carried. Um, She's also described, as you know, the Ark of the Covenant um, because the Ark carries the covenant and Mary carries Christ in her womb as the Ark of the Covenant carries the word written on tablets of stone. Christ is the word made flesh. And yes, of course, uh, the beautiful antiphons for the offices of the Blessed Virgin, one of them, it's very hard to translate into Latin. It's Deus alleged et pre-alleged aeum, aeum. God chose and especially chose her. And as you know, both in the case of our Lord's humanity and in the case of Mary, this was not in light of her merits. It's rather the other way around. Because she's especially loved by God and created with special grace, she has a singular privilege as a human person. Christ is a divine person. But as a human person and being freed from any uh, contact with original sin, it demonstrates his intense love for her and that no one will ever be as loved or as Mary. And also, in light of the feminist movement, it's important to point out that there's no human being. Now, Christ, again, is a divine person with a human nature that is as great as the Blessed Virgin Mary. So she's greater than any pope. She's greater than any uh, priest. She's greater than the angels. Uh, Everyone uh, venerates her for her holiness, and it's because she especially believed in God on earth and loved him in the person of, of course, her son Christ. So um, the, the beauties of Our Lady are immense and deep, and it's because she was the most humble of creatures. He who is mighty has done great things for me and holy is his name. You know, when Elizabeth says, blessed are you among women, uh, she doesn't say, oh, yes, I want to thank all the little people who may be what I am today, <laughs> you know, like a Hollywood actress. That's Mary's opportunity to evangelize Elizabeth. Uh, so she addresses Elizabeth. Uh, the feminists have changed it all around, so it seems that she's saying a prayer to God. No. My soul proclaims the greatness of the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Everything is centered on God and on Christ for her. And that's what makes her so great. 833-288-EWTN. We're ready to take your phone calls here on EWTN's Open Line Thursday. Pick up the phone and give us a call at 833-288-3986. All right, Mr. Follower of St. Thomas Aquinas, Mark would like to know, where did God the Father come from? (laughs) He didn't come from anywhere. (laughs) God the Father is infinite and eternal. Everything comes from him. Uh, In the uh, Trinitarian theology, uh, there are relations which reflect the difference in the persons of the Trinity because there is no distinction among the persons except relationship of origin. So the father has no origin. That's his part. 
the son proceeds from the father and takes his origin from him. And then remember, the Holy Spirit proceeds, well, at least in the Latin theology, in the, nice, the way the Nicene Creed finally was uh, um, set in Rome, which is a dispute we've had with the Eastern Church, um, the Holy Spirit proceeds in the Father together with and the Son. But the Father is unoriginated, so he has, doesn't come from anywhere. Since God is infinite and eternal, he who is, it's very hard in some ways to conceive with our minds, but he's the source of everything for in the Trinity, and then the Trinity is the source of everything outside of the Trinity. And uh, why did God create the world? He didn't need us. But he did it because goodness always wants to be shared. So the Father's goodness he shares with the Son, and the Son receives it equally, co-eternally, not as a creature, not as a lesser being. The same is true of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is a separate person because the Holy Spirit shares this goodness with the Father and the Son. And then the Trinity itself, which is infinite and eternal, shares their goodness as persons with everything else that exists on various levels of creation. But also as they come forth in the unity of God, because the goodness is involved, have an attractiveness by which they seek to return to God. And that attraction, well, you could say, uh, now it's, again, somewhat poetic, but real when it comes to um, animals and human beings, life, that there's a certain love for everything that exists. So God loves the world into existence. It's a matter of the gift of his goodness and love. And then all the things in their actions seek to imitate and return to him. And sort of in a related question, as we move from the infinite to the uh, time and space realm, Brian asks, has Jesus always been human? No. Christ begins to be human when he's conceived in the womb of Mary. He's always been a person. He's always been a divine person. But his humanity only begins to exist when his divine personhood is conceived in the womb of Our Lady. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. It's a free phone call anywhere in North America. 833-288-3986. Tina would like to know, what does it mean to have a devotion? Most specifically, what does a devotion to the most precious blood of Jesus mean? Well, the term devout is a very open-ended term, but it basically refers to a respect for the goodness of, um, well, either a person or what leads us to appreciate a person. Now, in the face, uh, in Christ's case, a part of what we respect and love in him is the fact that he died on the cross. And that death of the cross is prefigured, or actually accomplished, but then made present to us in the Eucharist in the separate consecration of the body and the blood. 
So, uh, and the blood has this further significance in the origin of the sacraments, because as you remember, blood and water flowed from the side of our Lord, and his side is considered to be a fulfillment of the prophecy in Ezekiel about the right side of the temple, uh, with the river that flows in the right side of the temple. And so in that sharing, the sacramental order is implemented, introduced, and begun. And so our devotion to the precious blood means that we love and respect the blood of our Lord because it leads us to him and to appreciate what he is to us as a redeemer. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. First up today is Amy. She is in, well, check that. We will get to Amy in just a moment. Uh, again, that number is 833-288-3986. If you're outside the United States and Canada, we'd still love to hear from you. That number is one 205 271 2985 and we'll even put you straight to the front of the line at 1205-271-2985. Samuel would like to know if God created everything, including viruses and diseases, is the sin how we react to the diseases? I don't quite understand the sin thing. What, what sin are we referring to? Are we referring to the original sin, the actual sin? Yeah, I'm not really sure myself, but I think if uh, I think he's sign of saying because sin entered the world, is that why we, ex- oh. we exi- ex- exhibit the symptoms that we do when disease comes upon us? Yes, I would say yes. But remember, the reason we didn't experience viruses and things like that, they certainly existed before the original sin was committed, was because God protected us from all those things. And in the original sin, he withdraws his exterior protection from those. Because uh, one thing's meat is another thing's poison. Uh, Lions live off lambs, so the lion's bad for the lamb. The lamb eats the grass. The lamb's bad for the grass because that's life being consumed and transformed too. Uh, everything sort of lives off everything else in material creation because of the limitations of matter. But the negative experience of catching a virus where we suffer from it is something that we would not have experienced before the sin because, again, God externally protected us, especially loved by him from it. Now, once we questioned his protection, the fact that we needed him for everything, then he basically takes us at our word and withdraws that protection. So that's where sin and death enter. Uh, We certainly had the ability to die before the sin, but God externally protected us. uh, It's a good uh, rehearsal for the way God treats our Lord. I mean... As you know, our Lord is often described as experiencing certain human weaknesses like hunger and thirst, but he's never described as having the flu (laughs) (laughs) because God protects him from these things. And regarding his death, um, you recall that 
God protected him several times during his life from the will of his enemies. So that's basically the answer to that. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. In just a moment, we'll talk to Amy from Omaha, Nebraska, Pete in Chicago, Illinois. We've got plenty of time for your calls as well. It's Open Line Thursday with Father Brian Mullady. This is Open Line on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Now, it's time for the much-anticipated call from Amy in Omaha, Nebraska, listening on Spirit Catholic Radio. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Hi, Hi, Father. Hi. I have a question for you today about the saints. A lot of times when you're reading about their lives, you read about them, and you more than one just seems to be maybe mentally not quite balanced or something off in their life or extremely depressed. Are they, are they just at a higher level of holiness that these things make sense to them and we don't understand? Or what can you explain to me about these great saints? Well, I don't know if I'd use the word depressed, I mean, I thought you were going to ask me about some of their unbelievable penances. Um, I, for one thing, God God works with uh, crooked lines. He waits straight with crooked lines, as you know. And one of the reasons some of the saints had such difficult lives is to t- teach us, you know, that even we, though we have difficult lives, we can also be holy too. Because, you know, you pick someone that you think represents your struggles and when you see how they dealt with their struggles in grace always looking to God's grace and his his holiness it helps you to deal more with yours now when it comes to their penances I remember I heard a very holy old Carmelite nun she was Mexican and the young nuns would come and say, well, we think we should sleep on the floor, and we think we should do fasting, and we think we should do all those things. And she'd say, uh, mejor no. Better no. And they'd say, but all the saints did those things. And then she'd smile and she'd say, dear, those things are meant for our admiration, not for our imitation. And what she was trying to emphasize was God has his personal providence for each one. In fact, in my own order, you know, St. Dominic had some very peculiar practices. For one thing, he never had a room of his own. He used to sleep under the altar in the church, and he'd always have vigils. You know, he'd stay up all night. As a result, he'd fall asleep during the day a lot, and had conversations and things. And uh, one time, the brethren... You know, his followers, remember my, my order, the primitive order, decided to imitate him. So he, he was sitting there in the church in the, after the midnight office, and they stayed up too. And he went over and said, what are you doing? Well, you stay up. He says, yeah, well, that's God's will for me. It was his will for me before I founded this order. Your will is that you obey the rule and go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, 
uh, uh, uh, the saints, you know, all of them have struggles of various kinds. In fact, sometimes we're surprised that the people that seem the most holy are the ones that go through the biggest struggles. And that's because God knows people can take those things and he wants to do them as imitations for us. I don't know if you know much about the life of Catherine of Siena, but that poor thing, um, you know, she had all these followers, called her Mama. She helped, ordered the Pope back to Rome and he actually went. But in the sisters that she lived among, because in those days, they, the active sisters didn't live in convents like they do today. They lived at home and went to church to pray. Well, the sisters, her biographer, who was her confessor, relates, were so furious at her and jealous of her receiving divine favors that in those days, you used to have to have permission from your confessor every time you went to Holy Communion. So they'd have, uh, have the Dominican confessors, they'd cite them, to forbid her to go to communion for several weeks on end. Then when she did go to communion, they used to insist that she leave the church. Well, the poor thing couldn't do that because every time she went to Holy Communion, she fell into ecstasy. <laughs> and it says, do you, the Raymond of Capio, her biography, do you think this stopped the true daughters of Eve, he says? They used to carry her out of the church and throw her into the piazza under the hot sun and kick her in their anger while she was in ecstasy over having received Holy Communion. <laughs> so those things, are, and yet it says that she always believed that misplaced as it was, they were acting for the good of her soul. So uh, you wonder how sometimes religious people can be so cruel to each other. Uh, part of it is people get jealous or they get upset and you know, they treat each other very badly, more than they would the worst enemy, in a sense. But those are meant to show us that um, no matter what we experience in life, that God's grace is sufficient for us if we turn to it. Teresa Vavili used to have what she called the virtue of silence. Whenever anyone criticized her for a fault, she didn't think she had, unless it was a matter of justice. She never defended herself. And her response was that she was guilty of much deeper faults in her soul that no one knew about. And so, well, suppose, so they criticized her for this. She didn't really care. And uh, she said, you know, you just have to let it go and move on. And there are some people that are never going to like you. Um, but it's interesting, the whole th the question of the lives of the saints and how different they are. But that's because we have such a huge differential church. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Pete in Chicago, Illinois, listening on WSFI Radio. Pete, you're on with Father Brian. How you doing, Father? I have a simple question for you. How do I defend Mother Mary from my uh, non-Catholic friends when they say she was born through sin, eventually she was a sinner, and she's not one to be praised? Well, they're reflecting the Protestant opinion, which is, remember, that all human beings are depraved by nature. And even though there are people that seem 
you know, very loving and things like that and very Christian, that's God in them, but not them. So they're, remember Luther identified moral weakness, what we call concupiscence, with sin. And uh, everybody for them was considered to be depraved. It's a very pessimistic way to look at the world. Uh, and uh, it's also not correct. It's true we have a tendency to sin and we do have an egotism that we have to deal with. But it's not efficacious in the sense that we have to give in to it. Now, in the case of Our Lady, um, again, they follow the principle that she's a sinner just like everybody else, uh, which isn't true. It's never what the church has taught. Even if people taught, they had a great debate over the Immaculate Conception you know, for quite some time before they actually defined it. And even if people thought that she was born in original sin, or better to say conceived, um, which was not the churches, of course, that isn't true. Now, um, they believe she was instantly cleansed. Because the whole Christian world has always venerated Mary. Even Martin Luther, after he fell away, uh, he still had a soft spot in his heart for Mary. And it was very hard for him to you know, proclaim all men as sinners and yet not have this soft spot in his heart for the Blessed Virgin. Because she's such a wonderful person. I mean, why wouldn't you? And also, she's so connected with our Lord. And the scriptures connect her very much with our Lord, too. She's certainly present in most of the important events of his life. So I, I think, uh, now, now they've asked me, uh, what the berry bit is. One guy said to me, what's the berry bit with you people? And I said, well, you believe in Holy Scripture, right? Oh, yeah. Literal interpretation? Oh, yeah. I said, well, it says in Luke, all generations will call me blessed. And, and that's all we're doing. Just obeying Scripture. And he said to me, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, you may just point out scripture to them. And also the famous line, you know, where your mother and your brothers are outside, but my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Well, no one heard the word of God more in the history of the world and kept it than Mary because she conceived by her faith, first in her mind, but then Christ in her body. Thanks so much, Pete. We appreciate the phone call. You know, Father, I once heard... Uh... Carl Keating, the founder of Catholic Answers, was on the radio one day, and a caller called in and said, why don't Protestants make the sign of the cross? And Carl's simple answer was, because Catholics do. And I think a lot of times with things like our Blessed Mother, we're more interested in not being Catholic than we are of a truth, huh? Yes, except that I think Luther's big rebellion was against religious symbols, he, the sacraments were his primary problem. He didn't think physical rituals could communicate grace. And they would consider things like the sign of the cross to be superstitious. And, and, and yet, you know, you cover your body with our, uh, the, the symbol of our faith. I mean, why would that be superstitious? But they have a lot of problems with all anything physical. To but the ideal Protestant sect as the one that has no church building, no Sabbath, in other words, day, holy day, no scripture, 
no art, no music, nothing, no clergy, but the person just sits and the Holy Spirit enlightens them directly and they prophesy, and that's the Quakers. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number, 833-288-3986. Next up is Dwayne in Coronado, California, listening on John Paul II Catholic Radio. Dwayne, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Father Milady, I was hoping that you could give me a, a brief o- overview on the origin and the modern Church's view of uh, the practice of asceticism. Well, the modern Church's view is the same as it has always been. Uh, if you read the Catechism on the subject of prayer, it says uh, prayer is a battle. Against whom? Yes, Satan, but also against ourselves. Now, if you mean by asceticism of physical practices that cause you pain, um, those, remember, in Catholicism are symbols. Um, There's an old movie, The Nun Story, which uh, I I think is rather anti-Catholic, though it's beautifully made. Audrey Hepburn is a great nun. But the Mother Superior, during her novitiate, shows her the flagellum, you know, the discipline, which is the canonic cord, you know, that people used to use to beat themselves. And she says, this is the um, the miserere, primarily meant for penance in private. And then she says, remember, too much is as bad as too little. It's primary symbolism of penance, symbol of penance. So asceticism basically means addressing your base inclinations. First of all, you've got to admit you have them. And then you do certain practices that are an attempt for you to uh, heal them. But the primary way you heal things, the primary asceticism, is whatever revulsion or difficulty you may experience in living a life of virtue, which you give yourself as good to others. In other words, it's supposed to be an exercise of love. Now, if you can connect it to that, it's very easy to do. I, um, when I was young as a novice, we used to prostrate ourselves on the floor whenever we made a mistake. And um, I used to say that, boy, they never have to clean these floors because I'm on them all the time. <laughs> and then at a certain point along the line, I just gave up and I'd say, well, I may as well just make the prostration before I do it because I know I'm going to make a mistake. That's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, people did these things to people to encourage them, not to force them to be virtuous. Now, I think sometimes their zeal was misplaced, especially when you consider that at least in religious orders, many sisters and priests entered when they were like 17. And it was too soon to expect such a great self-emptying. Later, they would have taken on a much more... Uh, f- f- for practice, the same with fasting. Remember, Catholic fasting is pretty. <laughs> what is it? Two meals aren't supposed to equal the principal meal. All right. <laughs> uh, well, if you go to Italy with the people who wrote the law, a principal meal is pretty principal. <laughs> you know? So again, it's a symbol of uh, the desire to experience self-control. Uh, about your more base inclinations. But that's not changed at all. 
Thanks, Dwayne. We appreciate the call today. 833-288-EWTN is our toll-free number. Still time for your calls at 833-288-3986. You know, the National Catholic Register, the newspaper published here by EWTN, uh, has its own radio show. Register Radio. Join um, uh, Executive Director Jeanette DeMello and Dr. Matthew Bunsen uh, Saturday afternoon, 4 p.m. Eastern Time for Register Radio right here on EWTN Radio. Next up is Linda in Chicago, Illinois. She's also listening on WSFI Radio. Linda, you're on with Father Brian Milady. Hello, thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Go right ahead. Um, so I'll be starting RCIA this Saturday. And, um, uh, well, a little backstory is that I was baptized Catholic as an infant, and I, I haven't received the other sacraments. Um, so I, I was wondering um, what uh, like advice you guys have or like supplemental reading suggestions. Oh, well, first of all, praise God for you coming back to RCIA to get your sacraments. My primary uh, recommendation is that you get a copy of the Catechism of the Catholic Church and start reading it. Um, uh, they do have a pricey of it if you find that too hard to, to read a shorter version but I think the best thing is to try to read the regular version um, because it has a basic all the basic tenets of the faith in it and of course it was approved by the whole bishops all the bishops of the world and the Pope so um, I, I would recommend that and if you, you want something to help you Spiritually, uh, well, of course, this author isn't exactly a Catholic, but I would read some of the works of C.S. Lewis, like um, uh, the Screwtape Letters, for instance, which is a fanciful correspondence of a senior tempter in hell to a junior tempter on earth about tempting people from Christianity. But the primary source I would read is the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Uh, next, we head to the Republic of Texas. Bruce is in Texas listening on Guadalupe Radio. Bruce, you're on with Father Brian Milady. How you doing, Father? Great. Uh, the question I have, I, you know, is I'm new to the Catholic faith, and I was just, you know, wondering why we need a pope. Oh, well, we need a pope because we need to have some unity about what we believe. <laughs> You know, Christ established the papacy. We didn't, all right. But he did it because he knew what human beings are like. And if you get together in any kind of, I'm sure you go to meetings occasionally in your profession. If you get together in any kind of meeting, you'll have 15 different people with 15 different opinions about what we should do. And that's not good in religion. So you do have the bishops, of course, and I know they're pushing this synodality thing now. And, the, you know, there's nothing wrong with the synodality, but the Protestants and Orthodox have had synods for years, and they have no unity of doctrine. So the Lord was established, Peter, as he says. Now, there's the famous passage about the keys, but the other passage is, I prayed for you, Peter, that your faith may not fail, and you in believing strengthen and confirm your brothers, by which he meant the apostles, which we take to mean the bishops. So the Pope is the bishop of the bishops. And uh, his primary role 
is to be sure that we're teaching unity together. And, and any religion that doesn't have a pope, you know, a primary bishop, the, no one knows exactly what they believe in the final analysis. So take the Orthodox, for instance. Now, they have many different patriarchs. Well, suppose, you know, we've had an ecumenical movement for many years to try to join ourselves with the Eastern Church, as you know, again. So Christianity will be one. I mean, the, John Paul II was very solicitous for this. He talked about Christianity breathing with the two lungs. Well, the question is, which one? The Patriarch of Moscow, the Patriarch of Alexandria, the Patriarch of Jerusalem, the Patriarch of Constantinople. And even if the Patriarch of Constantinople, who's primarily the principal one, um, should decide to join himself to Rome together, that doesn't oblige anybody to follow him. So when the Patriarch Spurts began speaking to the Pope again after many centuries of sort of alienation, immediately the monks of Mount Athos excommunicated him. How can we possibly have union with the Anglican Church? When, who signs the, the, the union? Not the Archbishop of Canterbury, because they don't have to believe what the Archbishop of Canterbury says. Or would, would it be the Queen? Now, Her Majesty died today. If there's a new king, if Charles is king, would it be the king? Well, who's obliged to that? The only way you can do that is to oblige them civilly. And the same is true with the other Protestant denominations. As you know, they've all become sectarian. There are, what, about a thousand Protestant sects or, you know, a whole bunch of them. Because every time somebody doesn't like what somebody else teaches, they found the new church. So the papacy is necessary for a union. A good example is when Henry VIII broke away from the Catholic Church after he died, um, Archbishop Cranmer was the principal person trying to lead it. And when the Pope called the Council of Trent to deal with the Protestant Reformation, Cranmer wanted to have a pan-Protestant council to answer the Council of Trent. So he contacted all the reformers and invited them to come together. Well, they couldn't even believe a grand where to meet. He wanted to meet in England, the Lutherans wanted to meet in Germany, the Calvinists wanted to meet in France, and they never got, he got even together on where they should meet, whereas the Pope just said, okay, we meet in Trent, period, that's it, end of the story. So everybody went there. Once you deny the principle of unity, it's all over. So any, uh, if in the synodality business, some of the bishops of some countries should decide they want to just have what's called a primacy of honor of Rome, uh, it's, gonna, it's not only not the Catholic religion, but eventually people are going to start breaking away. And the same thing happened with Archbishop Lefebvre. I mean, however good he may have been, you know, they, they broke into several sects. One doesn't believe there's been a pope since, what is it, Sadi Vacantus, since Pius XII, 12, maybe? Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, and the other ones don't, don't think that's true. Well, who's, who forms the unity of doctrine? There is nobody. So that's, Christ understood that about us, and that's why he, in his wisdom, established a vicar on earth. Yeah. Bill in Minnesota would like to know, why did you become a Dominican and not a diocesan priest? Oh, well, 
I don't know. It's hard to say. I was always drawn to drawn to religious monastic life, and um, and but not to the diocesan priesthood necessarily. Um, I remember when I entered, one of the diocesan priests in Los Angeles tried to get me to go to St. John's and investigate it, but I wasn't really that interested. I would rather have been a Franciscan or Dominican. And it wasn't just the habit, it was the the community life and the, uh, the prayers in common and the whole mystique of living according to a rule and the vows and all that business. And of course, um, I didn't know much about the Dominicans. I'd never met one when I entered except the vocation director twice. But I knew a little bit about St. Dominic and even more about Thomas Aquinas. And I wanted to join the order they were in. So... You know, and sometimes I, you know, people think that it's a, uh, you know, a, a deep, mysterious thing. This whole discernment process, but, but you know, what your your preferences are in the here and now is part of what our Lord uses to draw us in the right way, isn't it? It is. The, the thing is, people have to do it for the right reasons, though. Uh, when I taught at a seminary, most of the people were diocesan priests, and I never wanted to influence them by kind of proselytizing. But occasionally they'd be interested in joining the religious life and they want to talk to me about it. So I remember they they come to me and they go on and on about the community and all this stuff. And after about 20 minutes they said, we well, haven't mentioned the magic word yet. And they said, what's that? And I said, vow. <laughs> That's the primary reason you want to join the religious order, to take vows of poverty, chastity, obedience, to follow Christ more perfectly. Father, would you leave us with a blessing? May the blessing of Almighty God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, descend upon you and remain with you forever. Amen. Amen. On behalf of our host, Father Brian Mullady, our producer, Michael McCall, and our call screener, Matt Kubensky, I'm Jack Williams. Thanks so much for tuning in. Back at it tomorrow with our very own Vice President of Theology, Mr. Colin Donovan, on Open Line Friday. Until we get together then, God bless.